Oh, good morning again. It is wonderful to be together, isn't it? I'm going to be honest with you. This is not the message I had originally planned to give this morning. Uh, but it was a topic that came up. I was covered during my Sunday school class a couple weeks ago, and I just kept thinking about it. So I trashed what I was originally. Uh, I'll save it for a later time so it's not completely trash. But um, And what we talked about was uh, creation. And so I want to consider that this morning. And I've titled my message, Creation, A Christmas Story. And when we think about Christmas, we come to this time of year, our thoughts do go to all things Christmas. In fact, you can't even go to Walmart. You, get, you go into Walmart even before Halloween is done with, and you're already being bombarded by Santas and Christmas trees and all sorts of things. And we bring out the, the Christmas hymns and carols like we did this morning, and we dust off uh, pages like Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 and rehearse a Christmas story. As I mentioned, thinking about creation as a Christmas story. We don't often think of that. But I think it has a lot to do to inform Christmas. And so I want to start, I'm not going to stay here, but I'm going to start in uh, John's Gospel, John chapter 1, starting in verse 1 in the first three verses, where we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And again, I know we don't normally associate John's gospel with Christmas, and that's because, like Mark, John does not rehearse or does not give the details of the birth of Jesus. That's because that's not the purpose of, that is not one of the purposes of John's gospel is one of the major themes of the gospel is, of, of this gospel, the gospel of John, is the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that displays him as that over and over and over again. And so as John opens up his gospel, he makes certain assumptions. And the first one is that God simply is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He makes no arguments for it. He says, God simply is. Second, is that the Word simply is, and has been with God for all eternity. Third, as we see in verse 3, that the Word is God, and is and was the author of all creation. And finally, although not in the, the immediate context of these first three verses later on in this chapter, John establishes that the word is Jesus, and therefore Jesus is God and the author of all creation. So just a few notes here on, on just to get us started here. I want to jump back to Genesis chapter 1. That is what we generally associate with creation, and rightly so. Genesis chapter 1. 
And I want to consider the creation account and pull from it what I feel are some important lessons for us today. The first thing that I want to pull out as we consider the creation account is that we will see the character and nature of God on display here in Genesis chapter 1. <coughs> Excuse me. Second, we will see man's relation to God in creation, and finally, the implications for us today. And so regarding the character and nature of God, I was thinking back to a message I listened to recently. Uh, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself in the notes. Uh, when Paul wrote to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 1, he wrote this to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Now, he was speaking about the general revelation of God, of, him, of himself, as seen in all creation, and how the rejection of that revelation is enough to condemn man for unbelief. But in Genesis, God opens his word with a special revelation of his very being. And so jumping to Genesis chapter 1, the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And the first thing I want to note here is just like John's gospel, Moses simply assumes the existence of God. This is not a treatise for arguing for the existence of God. Although oftentimes Christians are, are tempted to make this so, and we get, into, we get pulled into some philosophical debates on this, but the reality is, is that Moses, who wrote, who wrote Genesis, simply assumes the existence of God. Rather, Moses, rather than getting pulled aside into philosophical debates, he treats this as fact. And this is what I was talking about going to earlier, I listened to a message recently uh, regarding the resurrection, actually, and talking about in Acts chapter 26, when Paul is before uh, Festus, uh, who was appointed the governor of, of Judea, and he was with King Agrippa, and he, re he recounts his conversion to the gospel. And when he reaches talking about the resurrection, Festus interrupts Paul, and he says, Paul, all your learning has made you mad. Of course, Paul's response is, no, it, is, it has not made me mad. In fact, the person who gave this, uh, who gave this message said, Paul, of anybody, he didn't want to believe. He came kicking and screaming. He did not want to believe. And then he turned to Agrippa and he said, the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice for this has not been done in a, quarter, in a corner. And so his response is, no, this is not some philosophical debate here. This is history. We're dealing with fact. And that's what Moses is doing here. He is dealing with the fact of creation, that God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. The second thing I want to note is, is that we begin to get a glimpse into the nature of God. First of all, we see his eternal nature. We read in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. And the, if we were to really stop and look at what is being uh, taught today, the prevailing dogma of our day is that it is matter that is eternal. The Big Bang, matter just existed. 
It was just there. How it got there, nobody has an explanation for it, but it was just there. And that's where we get the Big Bang from. But Genesis 1 tells us it's not matter that is eternal, it is God. He existed from the very beginning, before. As a psalmist wrote, uh, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In fact, he wrote, uh, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the heaven and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is eternal. No beginning, no end. He simply is. Don't ask me to explain that because I will lose my mind if I try to explain that. Because we're dealing about a being that we cannot fully comprehend. The only reason that we can understand anything of him is because he has revealed it to us. And that's the beauty that we have in the scripture, isn't it? It's God's revelation of himself to us so that we can know him. Another aspect that we glimpse is a triune nature of God. And with this, uh, as thinking about this, there's a lot said about the word of God word used uh, is translated God here. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for God is El, which is, uh, I understand, is translated the strong or the mighty one. And it's actually used of, uh, of the pagan gods, um, El, and Elohim the, being the plural form. And there's a lot, people make a lot of that. So, well, you see Elohim, that's talking about the Trinity. I'm not sure that's the best argument for the Trinity here. Rather, in verse 2, we read that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. First, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is in view here. And second, that word uh, moving in the, in the New American Standard or, or hovering, as is translated in other uh, translations, um, as I've heard, I'm not a scholar on this, but I've heard that uh, in the Hebrew rabbinical writings, uh, this word is often translated fluttering, and is pictured as, as a dove fluttering. And that's, that's how the, the rabbis evidently would teach on this, on this portion. And so to jump ahead, getting you know, somewhat uh, out of the context here of our, of our passage, and yet it, it comes in, if we jump forward to the Gospels at Jesus' baptism, what do we see? the Spirit of God descending upon him as a dove. And I heard one recently talking about that, that, uh, that the point of the gospel writers here was really to go back to creation and speak of that Spirit using that same imagery that the, that the rabbis use in speaking of the Spirit of God fluttering like a dove. And so we see, we get to see, a, uh, begin to see a glimpse of the triune nature of God we also see God's eternal power in view, and beginning in verse 3 and throughout the creation account, we see a phrase repeated over and over again. And I'm not going to read through all the verses of, of the creation account. I'll jump in here and there. But the phrase that we read, and you're, I'm sure you're well familiar with this, we read and says, Then God said, Let there be whatever it was, light, an expanse between the, the waters and so on and so forth. And then what follows? And there was, or and it was so. In other words, we see a cause and effect relationship here. There is a cause, that is the word of the Lord. 
and the effect or the result, be it in creation or judgment or any other action, is that when God says it, it comes to be. The prophecies commonly begin with, and the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Jeremiah, pick your prophet. The word of the Lord came to them. The word of God is effective. Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 55 and verse 11, the Lord said, where the Lord says of himself, says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth that will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I have sent it. Anybody remember those old commercials for E.F. Hutton that were on TV? You remember those? And they, they always had, it was always a, a couple of people in this crowd of people it was on a subway or wherever it was, and they're talking about their investments, and one person is asking about, well, what, what do you do? And the friend says, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton, and E.F. Hutton says, and what does everybody else do around them? Because they want to listen in. E.F. Hutton is so wise in what they do that you'd be silly not to listen to it. And put it in terms of our passage. Well, my God is Yahweh. And Yahweh says, and when Yahweh speaks, everything listens. All of creation and this is Genesis. This is, this is the, the Christian version of, of the Big Bang, if you will. God said it, and bang, it was there. That's supposed to be a joke, but apparently, apparently it, 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 uh, it did not. It, it fell flat, so, so I, will, I will go on. But I want to put this into perspective, and I was thinking about this. What God created. Light travels at approximately 186,000 miles per second. That's pretty fast, okay? And at that speed, it takes sunlight roughly eight minutes to reach, to go from the sun to reach the, the surface of the earth. Eight minutes, 93 million miles. One light year is the distance light tra will travel in one year, and that's 5.8 trillion miles. Can't even conceive of that. Now, our national debt is approaching that number, but uh, uh, see, now you laugh at that. Um, <laughs> our galaxy, the Milky Way, is roughly 100,000 light years across. Now, in terms of miles, that's 58 with 16 zeros behind it. The size of the universe, I Googled to see what the so-called experts say. Uh, astronomers note that the observable universe is estimated to be a roughly 46 billion light years. Now that's a 27 with 22 zeros behind it in terms of miles. Can't even conceive of any of these numbers, can we? And that's, that's, the, that's the observable, what they can see. Conservative estimates put the universe at roughly 7 trillion light years. That's a floor with 25 zeros behind it in terms of miles. And God spoke that into existence. Think about that. Spoke it into existence. 
and without going into it, the language of Genesis 1 definitely speaks to six 24-hour periods, six literal days for the creation. As one commentator put it, if God spoke this all into existence, then how dare we treat him as though he were a butler who only exists to serve us? Is that the kind of God that we can treat that way? No. That's his eternal power. I can't even conceive of that. He spoke it into existence. Another aspect of God's nature is his love as seen in the order of creation. And Genesis 1 records the six days of creation, and when I consider the vastness of the, of the universe and the, the awesome power that God has to just simply speak it into existence, we read of six days, and I have to wonder why he took his time. First, in the way he created, we see that, the, that God is a God of order and not of confusion, and Paul makes that comment in 1 Corinthians 14. As I want to consider this this morning, creation can be split into, into two halves. So I'll call it preparation followed by filling. First three days of preparation, and the second three days as days of filling. And so how does this equate to the love of God? Well, I was thinking about it, and we have, we currently have two couples, I don't know if you know this or not, but we have two couples in our assembly that are expecting children. I don't know if I can spoil the surprise if you don't already know, but James and Allie and Alex and Caroline, both expecting children. And so, wonderful. And those of us who have children, we remember that we prepared for the arrival of our children. I will, I will joke with my Sunday school class and say, yeah, well, you know, when, when we knew, when I heard that we were going to be expecting a child, I just grabbed a box and put it in the corner and put some newspapers in it and said, you know, a baby doesn't take much. It can just sleep in there. And, and that's silly. They, they know better than that. Even as earthly parents, we are very good at ensuring that a child has a place to sleep, has enough diapers. I'm not sure there's really enough diapers, but, uh, but uh, make sure that there's plenty of diapers available, clothing for appropriate temperatures, uh, uh, as well as how we're going to feed the child. In other words, we provide for our children everything they need to grow and to thrive. And Jesus even speaks to this fact in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 11, when uh, following when his disciples asked him uh, to teach them how to pray. And he made this comment. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is, or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you know how to give good gifts to your children, if you know how to provide for your children, how much more does God know how to provide for his children, for his creation? And so in each of the first three days of creation, God prepared for what would fill that space. In the first day, we read in uh, Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5, we read, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. 
we then see God separating the light from the darkness. Uh, he called the light day and the darkness he called night. And then in the second day, verses 6 through 8, we read, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. We see the formation of the sky separated from the seas. The third day, verses 9 through 13, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. We see the dry land appearing. On the dry land that he called forth... Uh, on the dry land that he called forth, he spoke into existence all the vegetation, the fruit-yielding trees, etc., etc., etc. I'm going to be putting preachers on this dry land, and they need to have something to eat. I'm going to provide for them. And at the conclusion of each of these events, God proclaims, it is good. And then, so that's days one through three, just very, very high level, not going into any detail at all here. That's not my purpose here. And then in each of the succeeding three days, God fills his creation. Beginning in verse 14, day four, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And so he made the two great lights in verse 16, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and also the stars. I kinda, I, I've always considered that almost humorous. The way, that, the way that Moses wrote that. I'm not sure if that was the intent, but I, I should read it that way. You know, you think about his, his awesome power. Yeah, he created the sun and the moon. Oh, yeah, and all the stars up there. Yeah, he created those too. Almost sounds like an add-on. But that is the greatness of his power. Spoke it into existence. Then in verses 17 and 18, we read that God placed each of the lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars into their proper abode. Then going on to day five, God fills the seas and the skies. And we read in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 1, Then God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the, expan of the expanse of the heavens. Again, the place that God prepared for life is now filled with life. It's teeming with life. And each of the creatures inhabiting the sea and sky came forth after their kind, not through a process of evolution, but each one fully formed. And this answers the age-old question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And the answer is the chicken. Fully formed. And then finally, on day six, and here we see God's creative work in two portions. The first portion in verses 24 and 25 where he creates the animals to cover the land. And we read in verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. In the following verse we read how the various animals came into existence, each after their own kind. And again, not through an evolutionary process, but completely, fully formed. For the entirety of the animal kingdom, the sea, sky, and land, we read that God blessed them 
saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters, the sky, and the earth. Animals, have babies, have lots of them. Be fruitful and multiply. Then in the second half of day six, we see the purpose for all this creation. And this is the culmination of seeing God's love in full display. And we see also man's relation to God in creation. This is what all the preparation is for. And in verse 26 of Genesis 1, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And the language changes here. I hadn't noticed that before until just recently when I was reading this. The language changes here. Because up until now it said, and God said, let there be, and there was. And I would submit to you that the language here when it says, that, and God created man in his own image, it speaks of a more intimate act than simply speaking them into existence as he did with the rest of creation. Now, I'm not suggesting that God is not intimately involved or concerned with the rest of his creation, but rather there's an even deeper connection to the creation of man. Consider what we read in the following chapter, in chapter 2 and verse 7. Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and so the man became a living being. And a couple of weeks ago, one of the kids in my Sunday school class, he asked about that. And he had seen a picture somewhere that pictured this as though God had hands forming this. I thought, you know, I hadn't thought about it in that way. Now, we know that God is spirit, okay? But that, that visual, and I think that speaks to the care with which God created us, man. The only part of his creation that says we are made in his image. And it's fascinating imagery to think about God forming us, molding us, as clay, as it were, and creating us in his image. And all of creation was leading up to this point. And it is in this that we see the love of God on display. And as I noted before, just as earthly parents lovingly prepare for the arrival of their children, how much more did God prepare for that part of the creation created in his likeness? God was creating and preparing everything so that we could grow and thrive in the purpose for which he set for us. He placed man in the garden to tend and keep the garden. He provided all that was necessary for the man to have dominion over his creation. He provided all the necessary food, the resources, etc., for the man to grow and to thrive. And I think to the New Testament, as Paul wrote this in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, regarding the purpose given to the believer. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have a purpose as believers. 
he gave the people, he gave man in the very original creation the purpose to tend the garden, to have dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, have babies and have lots of them. That's the modern day translation. Have dominion over the earth. Subdue it. That doesn't mean abuse it, but to care for it. Maybe hard for us to believe, but work was actually blessed. That was the purpose. And in that, to glorify God. And it says that we were made in God's image. I don't have time to, to completely unpack this, but for our purposes this morning, and I think among one of the greatest implications of the fact that we are made in his image is that we were made to be in fellowship with God. And it is only after the creation of man that God proclaimed his creation to be very good. Until then, it was good. Now it is very good. Made in his image. And finally, as we draw to uh, close here, what are the implications for us today? And, and what in the world does any of this have to do with Christmas? I'm, 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 you're probably thinking I'm somewhat out on a limb here, thinking, why, I'm, okay, I'm talking about Christmas, but going to creation. Why? Well, first, while we were made to be in fellowship with God, our sin created a separation between God and man. Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, the prophet wrote this, Behold, the hand of Yahweh is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. While we were made to be in fellowship with him, yet our sin separates us from him. But despite this, the second point, despite this, and we consider this this morning during the first hour, God shows himself to be gracious and merciful to his creation. When David looked to creation, he marveled at God's goodness and grace to those who are in rebellion against him. In Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, David wrote this. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? We're nothing compared to God. And we have rebelled against him. And yet, God in his grace and mercy and holiness and righteousness, he cares for us. And then finally, consider what Christmas is all about in John 1 and 14. I alluded to this earlier. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We sang earlier out of the Christmas book, Emmanuel, God with us. It's a name given to Jesus. Luke chapter 2, in the Christmas story, we, we read this, starting in verse 6. And while they were in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. Think about this. 
and go on with another passage and circle back around on this. Luke continues in Luke chapter 2, in verse 8, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Going back to the account of when he was born, and she wrapped him in claws. Think about this. This is the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who is eternal, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is from everlasting to everlasting, the one who calls the stars by name and knows when a sparrow falls from the sky, knows the number of uh, the very number of the hairs on your head. And for some of those, he, for some of us, he's counting backwards as he's doing that now. <laughs> this is the very same one who came as a babe in Bethlehem the creator now among the created, being fed, having to be changed. We all know what babies do. And Jesus was no different. He cried. He would stub his toe. He would bleed. He was a carpenter's son, learning the trade of a carpenter. How many splinters and cuts do you think he got? He bled just the same as you and me. That is the creator of the universe, the one who spoke seven trillion light years. Estimate of the size of the universe. Which, by the way, the universe has a beginning and an end. The universe is not infinite. There's only one who is infinite, and that's God. But this very same one who created all that, who did all that, and spoke that into existence, for a moment in time, he exists as a single cell in his mother's womb. Have you ever thought about that before? Think about that. Think about how he humbled himself. Tell me that's not mind-blowing. And there's more. This very same one experienced a fully human life, yet without sin. He grew tired. He got hungry. He experienced, the Almighty God experienced weakness and human frailty. And Paul wrote of this one in Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." The very same one who created the universe, who spoke it into existence, is the very same one 
who hung on a cross cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone once noted that on the cross, Jesus didn't cry, my, my head, my head, my, my hands, my hands, my feet, oh, my aching feet. I've got these nails going. No, he didn't call out any of that. He could have. You and I probably would have. He didn't even cry out, my father. He cried out, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Because that one who always did that which pleased the Father now experienced separation from the Father for you and for me. As it was a trinity ripped apart. So that we, even though our sins have made a separation between us and God, may experience fellowship with the Father. Our sin imputed to him. His righteousness imputed to us. That's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate this every year. God with us, God come in the flesh, living among us so that he could die for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we get into this Christmas season, we can stop and ponder all that this means the very creator of the universe, clothed in humanity. Oh, what grace, what mercy, what love. We thank you that he did that. just so he could die in my place, in our place, to take the punishment that we deserve, that we might be in your presence for all eternity. This has great implications for how we live our lives as we ponder this. And so, as the Apostle Paul and others wrote in Scripture, may we walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. May we walk in a manner worthy of that one who came. Help us to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.